Welcome to Hot Fails and Home Invasions, the podcast. Now, we are going to talk about something other than methamphetamines tonight. We're going to touch on anger. <clears throat> now, There are some things that people need to understand about anger. For years I was known in my friend group as the calm one. I took this label as a compliment because it meant I was stable. I could handle stress well. I could use a well-motivated voice and carefully chosen words in a conflict. I could articulate rather than emote. I felt these were worthy accomplishments and a sign of superiority. Clear indications that I was not weak, emotional creature, but a strong, stable, mature, logical person. (laughs) How wrong was I? I carried this idea of myself for years until a small incident broke it open and broke me down. We were at the beach. Um, My niece was 10 at the time and was coming out of the water. She was hopping and playing in the surf when a dog ran up and jumped at her and bit her. It wasn't a bad bite, but it didn't break the skin. She was physically fine, but it scared her. I was sitting a few yards away on the sand and I saw everything happen so I ran to her and I grabbed the dog by the collar and looked around for the owner but there was no one. I yelled, whose fucking dog is this? Silence. There were plenty of people on the beach but no one was willing to claim the dog. I gave up and chased the dog away and then went to comfort my niece telling her that it would be okay, that it's not a big deal. I was trying to convince her to forget. I was also trying to convince myself. But the feeling I had grew and grew. It was a feeling I couldn't quite name until it burst in my face with its red and orange flames and screaming voice and insistent crackling tension, anger. As the anger rolled and boiled, other memories clawed their way to the surface, demanding to be heard and seen for they were what they were situations in which I felt helpless, unheard, ignored, diminished and shut down. Those situations flooding my memory broke me wide open. What broke me down though were the corresponding moments that flooded in with them. The moments when instead of standing up for myself, making a voice heard, uh, demanding respect, uh, operating in power and expressing my emotions and needs, I shut myself down. In every one of these situations, I told myself those smooth sinus, debilitating words. It's okay, it's not a big deal. Oh, but no. (coughs) Oh, but it is not okay. And oh, it is a big deal. As it turns out, being able to consistently stifle your anger is not a sign that you are emotionally healthy. It's not a sign that you don't have much of a temper or that you don't care. 
or that you're a super mature person. It's a sign that you've learned one way or another to exercise great restraint over how you outwardly express your anger. Sometimes this restraint is good. It's helpful to control your words when you're angry so you can communicate the cause of your distress without insulting someone. When I see grown people cursing and insulting each other, say over a fender bender, I think more restraint would be good here. When I hear a parent belittling their child over a simple mistake, same story, more restraint would be good in this situation. Sometimes, however, restraint is not so good. If you're unable to express valid anger over injustice, injury, insulting treatment or behavior that you don't appreciate, you set yourself up for a repeat of that behavior. It's not your fault that people behave badly, but people do behave badly, or more often, carelessly. If they carelessly step on your toes or stomp on your soul, it's up to you to say, hey, I don't like that. I, w I will not accept it. Anger is there to help you speak up on your behalf. If you ignore the anger and stuff it down, stifle it and never express it, the most likely result is that the person will continue the same type of behavior. Maybe they don't even know they hurt you. Maybe they don't know, or maybe they don't really care. Either way, you keep getting stomped on. There are a couple ways this situation can play out. Scenario one, the fade. Uh, the person isn't someone close to you, so you fade them out and avoid them. And in that way, you avoid their behavior that hurt you without ever having to express your own anger about it. <coughs> Sometimes this is the easiest, most logical s scenario. Scenario two, the stuff. The person is someone close to you, someone you do care about. Their repetitive, repetitive bad behavior bothers you and it hurts you, but you don't know how to express your anger about it, so you just stuff it away. Stuffing it does not solve or alleviate anger, so the anger just gets packed down, smushed in and pressurized. Soon it becomes a supersized steel tank of super condensed anger under very high pressure and at some point the tank will not be able to hold anything else. It will boil over and it will explode and it is not pretty. Anger itself is not a problem. Anger is often connected to unpleasant outbursts, yelling, screaming and cursing at people, heated arguments, fighting, verbal and physical conflicts, abuse and violence. But anger is not the problem. Anger is just a feeling. It is not a bad, it is not a good, it just is. Anger is a feeling and a feeling is a message. Physical pain is a feeling, it bears a message to you about some sort of physical damage happening to your body. It's telling you to stop doing or allowing what's causing the pain. It's helping you protect yourself from harm. Emotional pain, <coughs> anger in this case, is a message as well. It's there to warn you about some sort of emotional, mental, psychic, or spiritual damage happening to you. Whether the damage is perceived or real doesn't matter. The message is there telling you, wake up, pay attention, check it out, make it stop.
if you check it out and determine that there's no damage cools sometimes fear pro provokes anger to let us out, to help us get to get us to act sometimes a close look at anger will tell us that we're actually feeling scared and the best thing to do is let go of the anger and deal with the source of fear but sometimes there's more going on fear is always the root of anger we become angry with others because we're afraid we won't take care of ourselves and we don't trust ourselves. And there's a good reason we don't trust ourselves to meet our own needs. So many times we ignore them. It's okay, it's not a big deal. That's not right. Say it with me now. It is not okay. And it is a big deal. Unexpressed anger is a time bomb. When anger, especially a whole lot of Anger occurring over a long period of time isn't expressed, it doesn't go away, it compresses. When anger isn't expressed, it doesn't just disappear, it simmers. Anger is what motivates us to fix, to take action, change, stop, or fight something. Not all of our anger is well directed. Of course, sometimes it motivates us to take stupid actions, and very often we try to fix or change or stop or fight the wrong thing entirely but that's another story the anger doesn't go get to be and act and solve and express it becomes something much darker than anger it becomes a sickness uh, almost a poison and it's so bad for you and the person that's holding it in after a while it starts to color all your emotions and your perspectives and your assumptions that will poison your relationship with the person who you are insignated the anger but that's not all it will do it will poison your relationships with other people as well and you'll become a weird mix of very sensitive and rock hard that's because of the supersized steel tank you've put around your pressurized anger it's big and impenetrable and it takes a lot of internal <coughs> internal space and people go clanging around in there trying to be friends and connect and suddenly they get this rock hard cold metallic response from you at other times they'll get a completely over the top sensitive reaction that's because all of your emotions joy grief wonder anticipation insecurity disgust and so on are all now smushed uncomfortably into a tiny little space around your big anger tank. They get squashed and pressurized too. One of these emotions gets a random poke and it fizzes up and bursts all over. And you're just left standing at the zoo sobbing uncontrollably because of the beauty that of the pandas and you don't even know why. Or you're inexplainably, deeply, horribly wounded by a friend's compliment maybe we shouldn't go to the zoo it was a little tricky last time and you spend days crying and hiding in your room living on a peanut butter filled pretzels because you can't stop thinking about the implications of every single word that your friendship and the animals and what does tricky even mean and who says that it keeps going going until you manage to pull yourself together chronic Overthinking is a sign of unheard, ignored, uh, stuffed anger.
don't know when it will happen again and you don't know how, why you respond that way and you hate feeling so out of control you hate the deep dark rage that pushes its way up sometimes because it scares you and you don't know what to do with it so you stomp it back down into the tank and you twist it shut and hope it stays that way but it won't you don't want it to because that anger is there for you it is about you it presents as being about the other people and other people's behavior because we're all comfortable that where anger will masquerade however it must to get your attention. Anger is energy with a message and there's only one way to deal with it. Stop and listen to the message. Once you listen to the message, you can decide what to do with the energy. If the message is you're allowing yourself to be mistreated, then your energy can help you set boundaries. If the message is you're afraid of being ignored, then you can use your energy to speak up, to make your voice heard. The message will tell you where the energy needs to go. When you use the energy without first listening to the message, you're likely misdirecting it. However, oh sorry, have you ever yelled at your partner when you know deep down you're really not mad at, at, at your boss? Have you ever blown up on some tiny uncontrollable incident? Someone cuts you off in traffic when you know deep down you're raging lab of bad fear and anger because your mom has cancer or you didn't get the scholarship or your kid is in trouble or your partner doesn't listen to you. Ignoring the message and misdirecting the energy will make you feel better for a moment but it will only s- but it will not solve the problem. It will not get you to the cause. Ultimately it will not resolve your anger. The anger will return with its message over and over until you finally listen to it. Anger is there to serve you. Remember, it is a message of truth. It might be painful to listen. The message might knock you over and break you down and leave you bleeding on the floor. But it's the way forward. You can do this now. I believe in you. (laughs) See now, it's not always just about methamphetamines here. There's a few things I think uh, that need to be addressed. Now we must take a moment to be serious. While I'm not one who regularly speaks out publicly of Recent events, including the deaths of Kate Spade and Anthony Borden and the CDC report showing a significant increase in suicide nationwide, compel me to do so. I also come to you with a bit of apprehension as data has shown that media attention to celebrity suicide can actually increase suicide rates in the following months. But this is just much too important to ignore. We have a national epidemic of suicide and undiagnosed mental health conditions, and neither of those is going to change until we fundamentally change the way we view and treat mental illness. 
First, we must accept that depression is a disease of the brain and not of the body. It is not a weakness of mind, character or faith. While researchers are identifying some of the genes impacted with mental illness, we still know very little about how the brain works compared to other organs. That our understanding of depression is a primitive at best. It is a disease whose entomology and prognosis is not within our current grasp. In 2016, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy released a report that unequality stated that addiction is a chronic brain disease, not a moral failing. And his successor, Jerome Adams, continues that fight in the light of a national, nation's opiate epidemic. I call upon Dr. Adams, the Department of Health and Human Services, and the CDC to do the same for depression. Second, we must realize that depression is not just sadness or the feeling down, rather that it is a terminal illness. No different than Alzheimer's, a congenitive heart failure, or cancer. But it doesn't have to be. Just as we are entering a new era of cancer care, so too are the treatments emerging for depression and significantly suicidality. I can't say that word. Until recent years, there have been only two medications used in the treatment of suicide, lithium and clomazepine, the former for bipolar disorder and the latter for treatment-resistant res- schizophrenia. Both of these medications must be monitored extremely close for safety. Clomazepine can cause both life-threatening um, problems, or constipation being one of them. Constipation is so severe that yeah, it can be fatal. It's ridiculous. Requiring frequent doctor's visits and blood tests and the side effects profiles are such that most patients are reluctant to even try these drugs. Because of these concerns, these medications are likely underutilized in the treatment of mental illnesses. In recent years, a new choice is gaining popularity with both doctors and patients. This is profound ketamine. An anesthetic agent used at low doses has emerged as a rapid and often life-changing treatment for depression, anxiety, and suicide. Small studies have shown that ketamine treatments improve mood and anxiety after a short initiation phase of the treatment. And some studies have suggested that even a single ketamine dose can resolve accurate suicide, acute suicide. Ketamine blocks the NMDA receptors where the chemical glutamine acts as a modulator of neurostimulation. However, this change alone does not account for why ketamine works for depression and suicidal thoughts. So how does it work? The short answer is that we don't really know yet. Most likely these NMDA changes cause a downstream chain of events involving AMPAR, another glutamine receptor, voltage-dependent calcium channels and the release of brain-derived neurophotic factors. Uh, July 7th, more um, as 2018, um, more recent studies suggest that ketamine aids in activating messenger G proteins by pushing them off the lipid rafts in the cell membranes. Much like of the brain, the details are still unclear. But it works and 
For some people, it could be the difference between life and death. Ketamine can be given via a variety of routes of administration, whether oral, nasal, <coughs> sublingual, uh, intravenous, and the route chosen can significantly affect the bioavailability of how much the drug actually makes it into the bloodstream, and thus it can take uh, in its intended effects. By definition, the bioavailability of IV treatment is 100%. Ketamine's oral and sublingual bioavailabilities are as low as 16 and 30, respectively, and that of intranasal ketamine can be extremely variable, ranging from 8% to 50, depending on the study. But there is more to ketamine's effectiveness than just how much it helps, in, how much ends up in your blood as in, as evidenced by IM injections, the fast IV pushes of the medication, not to mention those abusing the high doses of ketamine recreationally. In these cases of rapid administration, patients may experience significant disassociative and hallucinogenic effects, but not necessarily the desired lasting antidepressive effect. While yet another unknown there's nothing there's something about the low the slow intravenous infusion intravenous infusion of ketamine that leads to the best treatment of depression and thus low dose infusions lasting about 40 minutes each are gold standard in ketamine treatment ketamine is generally well tolerated and has a long track record in the uses in much higher doses of anesthesia in fact, it is the anesthetic of choice in many ERs developing countries in field hospitals because it lacks the significant respiratory suppression of other common anesthetics such as, as, as such. The World Health Organization has made it part of the essential medicines list for decades. However, like every medication, ketamine does have its risks, including pterocardia, and hypertension, and thus is not an option for all patients. August 29, 2018, a recent study, Stanford study, suggests that the MU opiate receptor is likely involved in the ketamine antidepressant effect, perhaps further highlighting its addictive potential. Studies looking at the chronic receptive abuse of ketamine have identified bladder dysfunction and memory defects in the abusers, but it is also known that if, it, if this translates to the repeated low-dose use of the treatment, in the treatment of depression. While the long-term side effects are unclear, those potential unknowns must be weighted against the very real mor morbidity and morality of depression and suicide. Ketamine treatment must become more available for patients, and insurance coverage can play a significant role in this. A practice in the area where many patients can afford the facility and staffing costs associated with IV ketamine infusions without the use of their insurance, but that is not the case for all Americans or Canadians. Health insurance companies need to include coverage for IV ketamine to do their part in providing this treatment to patients who need it to save their lives, just as they provided coverage for stents and surgeries and chemotherapy. 
at least one pharmaceutical company is pursuing the FDA approval and subsequently insurance coverage for an intranasal ketamine inflammation. But intravenous coverage is essential. It is without, within our reach to make it an impact and nearly 45,000 American lost lives each year and then nearly 50,000 Canadian lost lives. The only question that remains is if we as a society will take this disease seriously enough to do so. Dr. Ramin Goshi, M MPH, is a psychiatrist and addictive addiction medicine specialist and the founder of Ketamine MD, a clinical and ad adversary organization for the advancement of novel treatments for mental illness. Every year, 13 to 14 million Americans have major depression that's matched by Canadians. Those who seek treatment, 30 to 40 percent of them, will not get better fully or recover with standard antidepressants. That puts them at a greater risk of alcohol and drug abuse, hospitalization, suicide attempts. Now, through a growing body of research show, shows there may be a new hope. Ketamine has a reputation as an illicit drug for parties and, and due to its hallucinogenic effects, but a handful of ketamine clinics around the country, people who weren't helped by standard treatments are getting serious infusions to ease their depression. The drug has also been used in emergency rooms for curing suicidal thoughts, making it a potential lifesaver. The benefits seen are pretty impressive and the data are very strong, says psychiatrist Kyle Lapidus. He's an assistant professor for the psychiatry and neuroscience at Stony Brook University. And he says there have been a, a large number of positive studies though the number of participants in those studies has been very small. Ketamine acts quickly, often without, within hours or less, and healthcare professionals who give it to patients at therapeutic doses say it has mild and brief side effects in most people. But it hasn't been thoroughly studied for long-term safety and effectiveness, and the FDA hasn't approved to treat the depression. The pace of research can be slow for some people who are suffering. It is not uncommon for doctors to go off-label using a drug for a purpose other than its approved one when treating patients. And in the cases of ketamine, the research includes his own, has convinced him that it can help depressed patients. Lubidus runs a Manhattan clinic called U.S. Ketamine. Soon it will be open. Soon he will open a second clinic. There he is changing lives and saving lives as we speak. Expert, experts don't know exactly how ketamine works, but they do know it works differently than most common used antidepressants such as Prozac or Zoloft or Effexor. And that may explain why people who aren't helped by standard treatments respond to ketamine when other medications don't help. That's novel and exciting. Um, psychiatrist Alan Manavitz specializes in treatment-resistant depression at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York. What's equally noteworthy 
is that ketamine's ability to go to work right away, unlike most antidepressants, which, which can take weeks, sometimes months, to provide relief. Feeling better faster and getting the, m the mood to improve faster, that's why ketamine is very promising. He cautions, though, that no matter how successful ketamine proves to be, you can count on one single treatment to cure depression. You need to address all aspects of the person's disease, from the biological and the physiological to the social and environmental. Ketamine is not a miracle drug. It may mont momentarily take them away from the catastrophic place that they're in with depression, but you're not addressing the rest of the patient. It's a complex issue to treat psychiatric, psychiatric issues. You have to be able to treat the whole patient. I think the more we look into this, the better it will be for society. For people considering suicide, though, the drug's rapid response could be life-saving. Recent studies have shown that a single dose of ketamine dra dramatically reduces suicidal thoughts. How long the drug's effects last remain to be answered. A few days or weeks, it's believed. But that window of relief could, be cr could prove critical. We need suicide treatments so greatly in psychiatry, says researcher Elizabeth Ballard. Ketamine could be a bridge for someone who's come for someone who comes in who is suicidal. They are given ketamine for the three days or so that it's effective. They can be hooked up with outpatient resources, with other medications and psychotherapy. Sometimes they just need to be talked down from the moment. Researcher of national Institute Ballard of Ballard is a researcher of the National Institute of Mental Health, published in a study in August that shows ketamine reduces suicidal thoughts, independent of its effect on depression or anxiety. It's important. It's a, a very important discovery, Ballard says, because not all suicides can be traced back to depression. Post-traumatic stress disorder, borderline personality disorder, and alcohol or other substance dependence, for example, also account for a lot of the nation's suicides. Further research is needed to explore the, study, the study's findings. While researchers continue to study ketamine, practitioners such as Lapidus have already begun to provide it to patients. The Ketamine Advocacy Network with 17 providers and clinics around the country. Anesthesiologist Eric Ebiru runs the Porto Portland Ketamine Clinic in Portland, Oregon. He works with the mental health specialist, um, Dr. Marilyn Sears, and gives IV ketamine infusions. Most of his patients are self-referrals. These people are suffering in the finding on everybody on they're finding these doctors online uh, he estimated that he has treated 30 people since he opened his clinic in the last 15 months he has he says he has no mental health background but he's got 15 years experience using ketamine as an anesthetic in fact many clinic operators are anesthesiologists rather than medical health specialists it's a weird gray area, he says. Who's going to help these people and do it safely? Before, 
abuse treats someone, he consults with their psychiatric or primary care doctor. Treatments then consist of six infusions over 12 days. Each infusion lasts about 45 minutes. Side effects, which often include confusion, lucid daydreaming, and fuzzy vision, clear up quite quickly. Patients are watched closely and must have pre-arranged transportation home. They are barred from driving or using heavy machinery for 24 hours. He says in his experience the side effects go away as soon as the infusion is over. The patients do, no, do not have hallucinations. He says about three quarters of the patients aged 15 to 55 benefit from ketamine. Older patients have a lower response rate. The initial six infusions cost around $3,800, the beneficial effects of which last from anywhere to three to five weeks for some patients and up to 12 weeks for others. Patients returned as needed for single boosters, which can cost $600. Because the FDA have not approved ketamine for this, the insurance does not cover it. Lapidus says his clinic will mainly use nasal spray from form of ketamine, a method that he and his former colleagues at Mount Siena's Location School of Medicine found effective. They published results <coughs> in research in April 2018. Manevitz, who's also used ketamine in his practice, says we don't know anything yet about ketamine's potential as a long-term treatment for depression. The problem is maintaining the gain and prolonging the effect, he says. Lapidus agrees that how to maintain benefits. This is an area that needs a lot more research. Most of the studies published has, have involved only single treatment use. quite profound knowing that they can save lives with this and I hope for our society's sake that the FDA does approve this if you know anything about depression or Lithium is quite a scary thing to have to take. You kind of become dependent on it for the rest of your life. And if you know anything about clomazepine, it doesn't make you feel very good. Uh, a lot of people just refuse these. And in totality, I believe that this is an extremely important discovery and I hope that we're able to come to a, some kind of ground with this huge epidemic that's going on. It is basically neck and neck with the opiate um, epidemic, which is also another heartbreaking discussion. And sometimes it uh, we need to take a moment to be a bit serious. Is psychiatry ready for M medical MDMA? Within five years, science will have likely answered a controversial question. Can MDMA treat psychiatric disorder? After some studies showing a positive effect, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is entering final clinical trials as a treatment for 
PTSD. These trials show positive results MDMA will go from an illegal drug to a prescription medicine in the United States in tw by 2021, potentially prompting the movement in this space of Australia and Europe. MDMA would move from the fringes to mainstream psychiatry, becoming uh, recognized as a mainstream treatment, op treatment option. What remains less clear is how psychi psychiatry will, <laughs> will deal with questions arising from this new treatment approach. German, our German pharmaceutical company, uh, Merrick, patented MDMA in 1912. However, it appears not to have been used in humans until later that century. But to known as the street drug in the raver scene in the 1980s and 90s, MDMA was used in the 1970s by a small band of U.S. psychiatrists and therapists. This group believed it's enhanced. It enhanced the therapeutic bond and improved treatment for ailments ranging from marital distress to potential schizophrenia. Following rebranding as ecstasy, large-scale recreational use of MDMA led to its 1985 listing as an illegal illicit drug in the U.S. Australia followed in 1986 and the MDMA Therapy Committee unsuccessfully protested against the designation. Advocates for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy have been playing the long game ever since undertaking the painstaking process of research and ad advocacy, which has accumulated in the upcoming trials. MDMA versus ecstasy. Advocates for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy have been at pains to distinguish the street drug ecstasy from MDMA, the medicine. MDMA can encourage, oh, ecstasy can range can contain a, a, a range of substances as well as varying doses of MDMA. Uh, always cut with strange things. This is non-surprising given early evidence that MDMA repeated doses are relevant for recreational and therapeutic use damage the neurosis in animals and serotonic use. Catastrophic predictions of the lost generation of ecstasy users, however, failed to materialize. Indeed, numerous people have received MDMA, MDMA doses similar to the those proposed for therapy in laboratory studies. This shows that MDMA can be safely administered under controlled conditions as well. It remains unknown whether the same is true for groups excluded from most studies. This includes children and older people and those with psychi psychiatric or physical illnesses. Studies day to date do, however, suggest acceptable safety in adults with post-traumatic stress. One aspect of MDMA therapy attracting less attention is that it involves a fundamental shift in psychiatric medication. All currently approved psychiatric medication treatment symptoms rather than the disease itself. Relapse is common after stopping treatments. We're coming into a new era where people are actually 
waking up. I believe that it's fundamental for us to explore these new treatments if it's going to be in saving lives. The question is, should the government make it easier to perform human research to discover medical uses of the illicit drugs such as cannabis ecstasy, LSD, methamphetamine, and uh, as we just heard today, ketamine. Professor David Knott of the Imperial College London argued recently that the, that the UK, like many other jurisdictions, makes human research on illicit drugs nearly impossible to perform. Knott made the point that the risks need to be balanced against the potential benefits for new knowledge about how consciousness works and potential medical treatments. There is some truth in this. Research on potential medical uses for illicit drugs has remained largely unfunded by UK, US and Australian and other governments despite solid evidence that there are some medical benefits to taking drugs such as cannabis. As pointed out by Professor Nutt, research on the potential medical benefits of MDMA and hallucinogenic drugs such as LSD and in the 1960s suggested potential therapeutic benefits for some psychiatric disorders. The illegal status of these drugs limited their further progress and it continues to do so now. But it is also but it must also be recognized that the regulatory framework for the drug testing in humans has changed dramatically since the post demolioride era after the 1960s when the drug was found to be linked to thousands of mothers giving birth to disabled babies. It is no longer ethical to test many, any drugs in humans without a great deal of very expensive safety testing and variety specific biological test symptoms systems in animals within a strict regulatory framework such as testing such testing helps to protect against Catastrophic errors is seen in the case of the formaldehyde, formaldehyde. Any planned experiments in humans must also undergo a very careful risk-benefit analysis and be accepted by a strictly regulated human ethics committee before a human trial can even begin, regardless of any restrictions. Someone, the public or government research funding agencies, will support some clinical trials of novel medication when the significance or medical need is so high. By and large, pharmaceutical companies undertake a very expensive work only when there is a clear likelihood of profit. That you can thank the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers for that. On the risk of benefit side, drugs which have been used widely for millennia, such as cannabis, are considered safe tests. There is solid significant evidence to prove this in the government commissioned experts report in the UK and the US and Australia have consistently recommended such research be undertaken. After the basic cutting edge of science, there has been an explosion of research on cannabis since the discovery in the early 1990s of the target molecules in the body that cannabis works on and the endo androgynous messages 
which cannabis mimics. Most of the work has been performed in animal models, isolated tissues and nerve cells, and it is not restricted by the much, much by legal status. From this work, there has been a steady growth in knowledge of the system in the brain that cannabis works on providing a, a solid significant bias for potential medical uses of the drug. These include simulation of appetite, manage of chronic pain. There are hints that cannabis-related drugs may also be useful for other disorders such as Tourette's. By funding research in the human that the funding research for humans in has been lagged behind this basic understanding. Rather than governments, clinical trials in humans have recently been campaigned by financially supported almost exclusively by companies. GW Pharmaceuticals based in the UK have developed a cannabis extract that can be administered under the tongue and initially to treat spasticity and multiple sclerosis and more recently to manage the manners of untreatable chronic pain produced by nerve injury. The drug is now registered for use in several other countries. The growth and knowledge of molecule mechanics, mechanisms of action of cannabis has provided other risks. So far about 20 experimental drugs that act in a similar manner to the main psychoactive drug in the plant have been invented, as well as drugs with opposite actions that block cannabis and the body's own cannabis-like messenger molecules. Endocannabinoid blocking drugs have been developed in several pharmaceutical companies such as appetite suppressants and other possible uses. One unintended consequence of such drug-developed research has been the um, cladocyne synthesis of synthetic cannabis mimics that have until very recently not been classified and are marketed as a legal herb or spice and produced a legal similar high to cannabis. Being chemically different from the active drug in cannabis, these synthetic mimics cannot be detected in routine drug tests. The manufacturers of these drugs attempt only to avoid the legal status of the parent psychiatric drug and have no concern whatsoever for the health or well-being of their clients. Effectively, individuals taking any of these drugs are human guinea pigs testing in the toxicity of potentially poisonous drugs. These cannabis mimics might not as might not be as bad as the tumulting epidemic that recent case reports of sudden heart attacks in teenagers following use of the spice or K2 highlight the severity of risk. MDMA um, if the case for cannabis research in humans is fraught with complexities in the situation is more problematic for the potential dangerous drugs such as MDMA and ketamine. The risk of life-threatening adverse events from MDMA is extremely low, but other adverse effects including high incidence of induction post-MDMA depression and the Tuesday blues could preclude therapeutic 
could preclude therapeutic use in vulnerable psychiatric, psychiatric populations. But we might be able to produce a better therapeutic from the wealth of the basic research on MDMA. Research points to MDMA's enhancements of natural empathetic neurohormone oxytocin in the brain, which has been tested in the context of facilitating therapy for patients suffering post-traumatic stress disorders. Treatment with this hormone itself may provide to be safer, more effective therapeutic aid for such anxiety disorders than MDMA itself and is in a field of intense human research in, Aus in Australia and elsewhere. Again, the Clement Coldstein market has generated many MDMA lookalikes that are sold as ecstasy, some of which are including a PMA or highly toxic. Testing of the illicit drugs on humans is, is clouded by political concerns. Many illicit psychoactive drugs have potential medical uses but also cause serious problems with misuse. It is a reasonable fear that attributing medical uses to illicit drugs normalizes them in the eyes of potential users along with the lines of it's used as a medicine so it must be okay. Of course this is as silly as the my misconception that drugs are, such as psilocybin and cannabis, are natural, so they must be harmless. Morphine is a glaring example of the illegal drug from a plant, which, with immense medical benefits and serious pain management, but also serious risks, including addiction and overdose death with misuse. Valid medical uses of cannabis and other drugs should not override concerns about misuse. I think education is the biggest factor here. Unlike any drug, it needs to be monitored. But these are profound findings. And I hope that we're a smart enough race to look into them further. There's so many lives at risk. So many people to save. And you have to put it to your, you start a YouTube account just like that. And you post, start posting his shit on there. He'll start sending him checks after so many thousand hits. Yeah. And you may be down and out in five or six years, but all of a sudden it's getting millions of hits on it. And People are becoming sudden, millionaires on YouTube. All of a sudden the money starts rolling in. Because people want to know how to run up a bazooka. And he told me that the state said, Dad, did you ever look at this? No, what? I said, well, I owed it to the YouTube world because I fixed Love so many you, things Papa. on YouTube. Love you, Papa. Love you, love okay, you. Love 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 So beautiful, and I 
just need a friend Someone to smoke it with me And smoke it to the end But please Don't be my wife That last bit she just sat here And she ruined my whole life So please Don't be my wife Just you and I In this big bag And I can be alive Sometimes I just wonder If this world is made of gold Sometimes I just wonder if I've gotten too damn old and Maybe there's a new star just made for you and me Well, I don't mean to be a dick So smoke this joint with me But please don't be my She just sat here And she ruined my whole life So please Don't be my wife As you and I In this big bag And I can be Supposed to be 